anyway, I was about to start talking, um, contrasting the method that we're using here with other methods. Um, and Cam, I will say, uh, for the sake of letting students know what we're doing on the ground, that being aware of what we're doing makes you better at doing it. Um, well, we're taking the position of contrast with last time. That works of ours, again, because it's uh, in the whole room. Now, contrasting that to people who believe that intelligibility relies on historical epoch, or people who regard the work as a cause and effect, and look for intelligibility as the causes, and people who make subjective interpretations. Uh, all of these have uh, only legitimate in their own way, and they were well practiced, they justify themselves supreme. Uh, when they're ill practiced, that's a problem. That'd be true of any method. Um, but there's a method attached to each of these uh, assumptions that intelligibility lies in these places, and it's a different method than the one we use. It's a, it's a way of contrasting our methods and theirs. Um, in epoch, you have essentially a whole epoch under which you have a bunch of individual parts. And the parts there, the parts derive their intelligibility from the whole. What's the method for that? Well, the method for that is, is really assimilation. This is what I count by what you know, I must have driving this distinction between whole teacher um, in other words, you look for what's the same in all these things. That would be the characteristic of the epoch, wherever you characterize it. Uh, another way in which that can be done, another, a byproduct of that, is that you can proceed by analogy. Since a painting is a Renaissance painting, and a church is a Renaissance church, and a war is a Renaissance war, and a diplomatic treaty is a Renaissance diplomatic treaty, and they all have that is common, you can say these are to that, that is to that. And you continue to extend the series by making one thing like it. So it's basically likeness and sameness. You've got the difference. Whatever makes the work different goes away. Not only what makes one diplomatic document different from another, but what makes a diplomatic document different from a poem. Right? Those tend to get left out of the picture. The cause of effect thing is really, we've been dealing with it psychologically. Uh, what tends to happen here is that there's a phenomenal level, that is to say, what you see are phenomena. Right? These are treated as effects. Underneath them are causes of whatever kind the philosopher wishes to specify as being actual causes. In these philosophies, generally, causes are considered realism. Because effects are the result of many different causes that may be accidental or local or temporary. When you're looking for a cause of phenomena, these philosophies tend to look for permanent and universal causes of effects. So, for example, it would be very hard to explain. Well, you all have different upbringings, right? You all come from different places. You make glorious mosaic of diversity. So, what what is it that's causing your behavior? Well. All of you, regardless of where you're from or when you're from. And the answer to that question, this sort of philosophical tradition would be greed and fear. Right? Because greed and fear operate translocally and transhistorically everywhere. They move all human things. Right? Uh, 
by analogy, this table this ta this has the shape of a table. But what's the cause of it being a table? The atoms. Atoms make up the table, right? And the atoms are determined and universal. They just happen to be in this form. If you want to know the ultimate cause of that piece of matter, you look for what was ir irreducibly permanent and universal. And the same would go with human motive. When Freud, who is a philosopher of this tradition, uh, analyzes behavior, he, he goes back from whatever the symptom is, the two causes, libido and repression, sometimes called libido and possessing, depending on how you know, put the causes and law. But those are really just two, two, uh, two motions. Libido takes you towards something, repression takes you away from it, or possession takes you away from it or whatever the other implication is. So you've got human behavior reduced to two motions, and that would be the permanent aspect of human behavior. So you go from whatever phenomenon you're, you're describing to whatever you take to be permanent causes by the method of analysis, which simply means taking a complex phenomenon and breaking it down into its more simple causes. Because the causes are held to be permanent and universal, they're held to be more intelligible in these other things. Greed and fear takes a different form in all of you, right? Uh, but that's just a phenomenal appearance. The reality is that we're all motivated by greed and fear. And when I put it that way, you see that that's very internal plausibility, actually. Uh, and the two go together very well. Greed and fear is a perfect example, by the way, of going towards something or going away from something. And sometimes these philosophers break their causes into simple uh, here it's a little different. We all know what a subjective interpretation is, right? It's when you say, well, I think the poem means, right? But if you really look at that closely, you ask yourself, what are you doing when you make an interpretation, right? Um, what you're doing is constructing the poem out of your own operations. In other words, your interpretation is what you do, right? You're doing it. And the poem that results from the operations that you take to interpret it is the poem, right? To me, the poem is blah, blah, blah. It really means that. It means that the, the object that I've constructed by the things I've said and the responses I've had is the poem. Not just the meaning of the poem, but actually the poem. So interpretation is really an operational method. Again, my old phraseology. And that whatever it is that you're describing results from the is identical to the operations that produce it. That's real operational, right? When the thing that results from the operations is identical with the operations that produce it, that's really the philosophical basis of the idea that personal interpretation has any kind of validity at all. Again, it's a philosophical position that can be held, but it's you know, interesting to see how radical it is. If you scale it up from simply uh, subjective interpretation, you say, what is the philosophical implication of the fact that the poem results from the operations taken to interpret it? You would have to say, you'd be forced to position it, and it's a legitimate one. Knowledge is produced by an act of the knower. Knowers make knowledge by operations of their own. Right? There is nothing but the operations of knowers. Knowledge only exists in a knower's head. No one gets there because they have no participation in the operations that produce it. And that's a more radical position than you might uh, take. I'll give you an example of it. 
you wanted to measure this room, the example is from, is from the uh, philosophical physicist measurement. You would take a rigid meter stick, as they always say, put one end against the door, mark where it came, slid the stick over, mark where it came, turn the whole gun, start. If you're fortunate enough, as, as I am, to have feet that are exactly 12 inches, uh, you could put one foot over the other and you could measure that that way. Now, what if you want to measure the distance between here and Pluto? You can't do it that way, right? You can't do it that way. So in principle, I could. No, you couldn't. Right? You just can't do it. What does that mean for, for an operationalist? Cosmic space is different from that first space. The operation taken to measure it by You can't take a, a meter stick and measure the distance between a proton and an electron. Can't do that. that you really can't do that. What does that mean? It means microspace, quantum space, whatever you want to call it, atomic space is different space because it results in a different procedure of measurement. You would have to say that about personal interpretations too. You would have to say that the poem that results from my interpretation is different from the poem that results from your operation. And then that's all there is to it because different operations are produced. In no case would there be a poem apart from the operation that. Um, now, one of the ways in which this is more commonly done than subjective interpretation is to set up a matrix of distinction and bring it to bear on the thing that's being operated on. So, for example, I could start with a distinction that the one I always use is the only one I can become and maybe familiar with you. I could start with a distinction of matriarchy and patriarchy. I could list the characteristics of matriarchy and list the characteristics of patriarchy. And then I could say, is among school children a patriarchal poem or a patriarchal poem? And you would say patriarchal, and you would identify all the so-called patriarchal aspects of it. You would be, by operation of your own, producing the poem. You'd be making a reading poem, right? But the reading would be, if you carry out philosophically rigorously, the poem. The reading that you make would be the poem. And I think we're more familiar with this. Any distinction can be made operating. Any distinction can be treated in that way. The only characteristic that you want of an operational distinction is that the terms be mutually exclusive and exhaustive of all possibilities. Patriarch and patriarch is no third way, right? Straight and gay used to be operational, right? But now I see from that poster there are many different operational distinctions being made. Form and content can be used operationally, right? What's the form? What's the content? Because that's that too. The assumption there is that form is form, content is content. They can never be the same thing, and that the result of the entire bring those terms to bear. So that's a more common thing, I think, when you find it. Generally, when you find a Marxist reading of a poem, what you're not getting is an actual Marxist reading, you're getting a operationalized Marxist term. So that revolutionary and counter-revolutionary become completely opposite each other, even though for Marx their characteristics are the same historical epoch. <laughs> And only understood in relation to each other, not its opposite. You can you can yeah, operate by that. Uh, so so there we are. Those are different methods. So what is the method that we've been employing? Uh, well, let me admit some of this up. The question that these philosophers are asking about the right about when, and this would go for anything, not just what is a poem, what is a work of art, what is a diplomatic method. What is X? In relation to X, like a capital X, 
grounded its reality. In other words, you would look at the X and say, what is it in relation to the ground and its reality? Which is the bigger thing, the whole which is the smallest? The question here is, what is the cause of X? The question here would be, in this case, in the subjective case, would be, to whom is X X? Or you could say, what operation produces X? Those are really the same question, but they have different emphasis. Now over here we have a different method, obviously, because we have different assumptions when we're doing different things. We're saying the work is the work. It's all there. That's all there is to it. It exists independently of our knowledge. We're coming to know it. How are we coming to know it? Well, we already know it. We read it. We had experience of it. We saw patterns and all the rest of it, right? But that wasn't a complete understanding of it as we saw it. But what we do here is reconstitute the experience of the work in a form that makes us more aware of it. We can never do anything more than reconstitute our knowledge into a better form. If we do any more, we would no longer be talking about the work. We got to the point where we said, well, this is a very interesting work. What do you think the author was feeling when he wrote it? Well, you shifted your method to another inquiry. That may be a legitimate inquiry, but it's already a different inquiry than the one that would take you to that point. Because the work is the work, all we can do is reconstitute it in a form better known to us or a form in which we are more aware of it. Because if we did anything more than that, we would be stepping outside the work. And that, as we said, would be off method. The question here is, what is X? And again, this would go for columns. If you really were to take it as a method, although the questions you ask and the form of the inquiry would be different in every case, you could ask it of a falling body. You could ask it of a political event. What is X such that it is X and not X? I mean, what is it itself such that there is not anything but itself and nothing else but itself? Here you're always doing it in terms of something else. That's really my objection here, or the way that I should come up with the objection. That's really the difference. The whole, the intelligibility is something other than the work in front of you. However much the work in front of you has that whole ground of existence. The cause is different from its effect. I think what he plays the whole knows. The interpreter is different from its interpretation. He would say, but no, we aren't. The matrix is certainly different from the problem that's being brought to bear on it. 
Uh, so those things tend to be a little different because we're just trying to stay within the But here's the thing. The work is the work. It means more than the poem is the poem. It more, let me put it this way. It means more than the poem is a poem. Right? Or the play is a play. Or the movie is a movie. The idea that there's such a thing as poem, of which a class called poetry, of which this is an example, or a class called cinema, of which this is an example, may not be what we want to do. That's an open question in this particular method. When I say the work, I mean this work is this work and no other work. And it has principles of intelligibility unique to it. However much they might be like other things, however much that likeness may justify treating them as the same kind of thing, the principle here is I think we got a very good example of that in Yates, by the way. One of the reasons why we couldn't figure it out is because it didn't make sense in any way that was familiar to us. <laughs> it didn't, right? It wasn't organized by some sort of logical structure that we could easily figure out what the argument was. It didn't seem to have any apparent sequence of emotions that we could relate one to the other. It was emphatically a whole work, or at least we certainly could assume it. But what its principles of unity were, were not anything like any other principles of unity I've seen in another poem or you had. And that's why we ran up, I think one of the reasons why we ran up against it, we didn't do it, we didn't deal with it long enough. I'm afraid we can correct that mistake. The other reason is because it wouldn't lie flat. All right, whenever we thought we had something, it turned out to be something else or something else that's complicated. It became very difficult to specify exactly what the way the parts were united to each other because they were united to each other in a way that needed to that poem. They say, well, that's too bad because I'm a young person. I'm a patient. I want to know the answer immediately. But the good thing is that the method actually turns up something very significant, namely that the principles of unity in this poem are not like any other principles of unity that we've seen before. It would not be turned up in any of these other methods which would ignore it. So we're getting to the specificity of works to the degree that we can't really uh, explain them by reference to other experiences of works we've had. And odd as that sounds, that's exactly where we want to be. However uncomfortable it makes people to something to be on that kind of thing. But when you're there, when you're there looking at the work and its true uniqueness, not assimilating it to any other work at any other time. You are on the forefront of literary criticism. Okay, this is where undergraduates should be. When we do a painting, you'll be on the forefront of artistic criticism and all those things. You'll be on the forefront, right? And that's where you should be situating yourself because you're not children anymore. That's what you should be thirsty for. <laughs> Actually, get to the forefront of these things and be taken seriously as inquirers. you're suddenly going to grow a new brain. This is it. Really, all that remains now is for you to actualize the potential. The potential is all there. We're not talking about a six-year-old. We're talking about a fully grown brain here in terms of intellectual capacity. The question is, will it actualize all those capacities at once? That's, that's the educational, precise educational question. Um, and the way that you can get that brain a little bit further along by putting it where it belongs, namely at the forefront of inquiry. And that's what we do in this class. It's really where you find the kind of different from other classes. And 
and it's real inquiry. I had a student who was in um, CV, uh, I can never remember her name, but she ended up teaching here. And the first thing she said to me right after year of training was, I am so sorry. She was a pain in the ass in class. She understood it. And there's a problem with CV. All the assignments are fictitious. Here I'm supposed to make a, 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 a menu for a health food restaurant. It doesn't exist. There's some truth to that, actually. Right? You're, you're, you're constantly asked to deal with what's unusual or somehow like reality, but not reality. And of course, the first thing anybody says when they get into the working world is, I learned more in the first six weeks, I learned four years. <laughs> on my Facebook. Now I've been seen to say it. I denied it up to now. It wasn't me, I was just been distilled and ventriloquist imitating me. Um, but those are, in the way, they're just fictitious. And I can see how some of us are really stuck in a fictitious world quite eventually we can just protest. Right? Um, nobody likes to be futile. Nobody likes to spend efforts on realities. You just don't. Uh, the philosopher of Dublin says we have an instinct that makes that makes us want to be effective. You know when you walk in the street and there is a uh, some construction going on, you have to cross the street and then to go back to the way you're going. You disproportionately are pissed off. It's <laughs> what ten steps out of your way. Why don't you like to do it? Because it's futile. And you know it's futile, and you resist futility. You just have an instinct that doesn't like to be futile in any way at all. I think that I think that's true, by the way. Um, and I, I so, so my soul aches to know is how you can stand it for so long, because a lot of the assignments are, are, are have that aspect of our reality. Um, I'm not saying that there's any other way to do it, but there would be another way to do it. Uh, this is another roundabout way of saying that the way to teach things that are essentially know-how, which is the kind of thing that you're learning, is by the apprenticeship system. You're actually working on things for reality. We don't have a principles for only one day in terms, and that's a very mm -hmm. important goal. Alright, that sort of trailed into where I didn't want to go. <laughs> Here we are, it's the camera. It's the camera. Now I see how people get in trouble when they're interviewed. Alright, any comments or questions on that? Yes. This one is to find self to sort of communicate with the other part of the most of these. Um, so, argument against that would be the, I mean, having a tradition to uh, go to work would be uh, having the work as a self Yeah, I think you're right about that. We, we tend nowadays uh, to think that. What is new has to, what is unique has to be completely novel. And we tend to overlook the fact that previous books were released themselves. Um, we tend to assume that self consciousness, self awareness is a characteristic of contemporary or modern art, as if Velasquez didn't know he was painting a painting. Right? It's never occurred to him. Artists can't do anything he isn't self-aware of. Right? I mean, it's not like it suddenly happens to you and you wake up. It's not like you go into what, what the shrinks call a fume. 
where you suddenly zone out of your life and wake up three weeks later and say, I'm doing something that's normal. Not how words are made, by the way. Um, and that's another assumption that is falsified by the experience of words firsthand in their actual uniqueness. Um, yes. I think if I may take this point a little bit further, from these works, from these disworks, forget this for a minute. We make no reference to history here. Right? History here is determinative. In other words, if you're a Renaissance person, you're a Renaissance person. Right? That's it. You don't have any freedom. If you take the epoch to be a reality, everything in the epoch is determined for you in advance for most of the major aspects. When Marx says analogously, the epoch that class determines consciousness, he means class determines consciousness. You don't have a free consciousness. You're determined by your class. We now might say you're determined by your gender or your race, but it's a determinant. The cause and effect is obviously a determinant. Once the cause operates, you're not free to do anything to see its effect, right? So if these are causes are historical, well, then you're also being determined. If they're psychological, then you're being determined. What made you do it, right? Well, your repressed libido made you do it. <laughs> I was made to do it. Um, but here we're free of history and causality. So there's nothing stopping a poet, we had one in class, from assembling a bunch of this, these, this works, calling it the tradition he invented. History, in other words, tradition here would now be a free choice of the artist of his own relevant predecessors. That's a very major sense of freedom, by the way, if you take that to be in the yard and the art. If you're a painter, you construct, you don't ask any of these questions. You say, who are the painters that matter to me? How do I continue doing what they did? Uh, and that's a free choice, and it, it opens up everything to freedom. It's not a direct thing in the method, but it does, for artists, it does tend to be a liberating thing because you can play the various forms of disguise and commentaries. We haven't mentioned the market either. But we live in a capitalist time, and economic causes determine everything. Right? This, these two methods can easily go into determinism. They are determinism. Right? The question of what freedom constitutes under these two systems is very different. And the question here. Freedom here is self-determination. Freedom here is conformity to necessity. Sounds paradoxical, but that's what freedom turns out to be. Freedom here is knowledge and cause, so you don't have to be affected by them. What the shrink gives you is Freudian analysis, the knowledge of your own cause and your behavior. Once you know them, you are free. Right? You're not free, then either those weren't the causes or you didn't know them. I leave that up to you to determine at the end of your therapy. Uh, but here, freedom is freedom of self determination that's undetermined by history or any external artist. Makes his own conditions, he makes his own history. In other words, he retrospectively establishes his past, his own past. And that, that is a really considerable act of freedom. Any other comments or questions? Oh, good. I mean, that's the beginning. All right. All I used to say in these classes is 
Find me a beginning. We need a beginning. 